0: Since 2015, Pop Health Podcast has brought to you some of the best minds in healthcare, including leaders from government, not for profit, and investor backed powerhouses, as they share successes, failures, and how our audience can move forward in today's constantly evolving healthcare world. Thank you for joining us for today's episode presented by 24 Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. I'm Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, I have the opportunity to sit down with Elizabeth Landsberg, who serves as the Director for the Department of Healthcare Access and Information, which oversees the Office of Healthcare Affordability. In today's episode, we learn how the state of California has leaders and departments in place which are really condensing the often outpaced growth of healthcare. And this new Office of Healthcare Affordability Its goals using data and visuals to really influence policy and keep healthcare affordable for Californians. In today's episode, we learn of Elizabeth's journey from growing up in Washington, DC, whose parents were involved in government, to her journey out west, where she studied in California and has really planted roots in leading this new office and ultimately making healthcare more affordable for all of us who reside in California. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feel free to check out other episodes of Up Podcast by visiting us on our YouTube channel, our website, popuppodcast.com or listening to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks everybody. Enjoy today's episode. Good morning, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining the show today.
1: Good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. All right. So before we get into kind of the work you're doing here in California, we like to get to know our guests a little bit, Elizabeth. So can you share something with us maybe outside of the workplace, uh, maybe fun fact, hobby, something like that?
1: Sure. Um, so recently, my husband and I became empty nesters, um, which you, you can't imagine when the kids are little, but we have a senior in um, college it's at, at CU Boulder and then a a freshman who just left, so we're getting, so we're we're having to brush our our hobbies off again. So I um I love being outside, and we're doing more hiking and running outside, I'm doing some gardening, and I do play a little bit of guitar just just for fun. So trying to spend a little more more time on those hobbies.
0: That's great. Now you mentioned guitar is for fun. Have you do you ever perform periodically, or is it truly just kind of on your own for, and for it's, fun?
1: It's pretty it's pretty much it's pretty much on my own.
0: Yeah. Okay. You mentioned uh, one of your children is a senior at UC uh, University of Colorado Boulder, is that correct?
1: Yeah, CU Boulder and then my is at Cal Poly San, San Luis Obispo. So they're okay. interestingly both engineering uh, majors. One is an aerospace engineering major and one is a manufacturing engineering major. Um, and I know little about engineering, but we've decided it's a combination of my kind of analytical advocacy skills and then my husband's an artist and an art teacher. So Oh wow! It's interesting, interesting to see that
0: come out. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask if your husband was uh, had an engineering background, but obviously he doesn't. Um, but those sound like great careers now for University of Colorado Boulder. Is that where the big football story happened this year? Am I?
1: Yes, yes. And my eldest has zero interest in football, <laughs> but uh, but I was like, oh, that's why it's it's crowded on Saturdays on campus now.
0: <laughs> that's funny stuff. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that and congratulations. Sounds like your kids are well on their way to hopefully having great engineering careers. Um, great to know about them, but let's get to know you a little bit more. Um, tell us where you grew up and ultimately how you uh, got into government or public service.
1: Yeah, so I think I think the two are actually related. I, I actually grew up in Washington, D.C. And when you ask people where they're from and they say Washington, um, many people are from suburbs, but I actually grew up in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. Uh-huh. Um, near near Union Station, and um, my parents met uh, working in for the federal government, so they met working for the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. They worked on voting rights cases and um, and desegregation cases in the in Alabama and Mississippi in the 60s. I think they had their first date in Alabama. Um, and so I think I you know, did have a great introduction to, um, government being able to make a difference um, seeing that just kind of because my dad worked for the civil rights division um, for most of my childhood he stayed there and um, so was always surrounded kind of hearing about the the impact of their of their of their cases um, Washington DC was a really fun place to grow up you know you would just assume that <clears throat> that they world-class free museums that you can walk into um anytime and and the best fireworks and you know all those things that you kind of take for granted did go to a couple of the of the presidential inaugural parades um which which was fun so it was was a really great place to grow up and and see the impact the government could make it it was also an interesting place to grow up because it was um i think it was about 80 percent african-american when i was growing up so very much of a a african-american city and with gentrification that's changed Um, we had the white flight and then apparently white people decided it was cool to uh, to live in dc again so it's it's changed a lot but um i went to public uh public school elementary school and was one of a couple of white kids um in my classes so kind of had the experience of being the other um, but then also had the, the privilege, you know, obviously had my white skin privilege and was able to go off to private uh, private high school. So it was it was a it was an interesting place to grow up, a wonderful place to grow up.
0: Well, thank you for the background. So what what happened after high school? Where did you end up uh, going to school and ultimately how to get to California?
1: Yeah, so I did go to, to undergrad um, in in Southern California and then. Um, worked for a few years. I was not one of those folks who went straight to grad school. I did go to law school. Uh, So I lived in San Francisco in the 90s and then went to UC Berkeley Law School. Um, Right before law school, I had worked at a shelter for battered women and their children um, and wanted to... So so during law school, I mostly worked on civil rights Mm -hmm. and women's rights Mm -hmm. issues, worked at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and worked at Equal Rights Advocates this was my first job out of, out of um, mm-hmm. yeah. law school. So it was a little bit of, uh, of um, chance that I ended up in healthcare. Um, I ended up moving to Sacramento, we were looking to move to Sacramento. And there was a job to be the uh, supervising attorney at the Health Rights Hotline. Um, and the job description asked, you know, said five years of healthcare experience preferred. And I had no healthcare experience. Um, but I had a lot of public interest experience. So, you know, it always depends on who the candidate pool is um, yes. and got the opportunity to, because I had that strong public interest experience, um, got that first job in healthcare care in, in the year 2000. So I've been doing health policy work for, for more than 23 years. And I think, as with many of us, once you get interested in healthcare and get exposed to it, um, it's such an impactful place, uh, such an impactful policy area, and impacts everyone. So, I um, have been in healthcare ever since and really love doing that work.
0: That's great, Elizabeth. Thank you for sharing that background. So, it sounds like, you know, your upbringing, there's been this consistent desire to serve the community from multi generations in your family, which is pretty cool. Um, I apologize, folks, and Elizabeth, My I have an Alexa device as we're recording today. <laughs> and for the first time, maybe in Two hundred episodes or so. Um, you may have heard. I think she picked up on something and thought we said Alexa. So I do apologize. We'll try to edit that out. But if it doesn't, uh, we'll call it just a, a fun part of the episode today. So uh, you mentioned you came out, uh, went to school at Berkeley. So what drew you to California after growing up in DC?
1: Oh yeah. So my my dad actually grew up in Sacramento. Um, so he okay. grew up in Sacramento and. Um, got the job with the with the, with the United States Department of Justice and the Civil Rights Division, so moved out there. And so we uh, met my mom there, grew up, and then he eventually moved back to Sacramento um, and taught at McGeorge Law School. So I kind of, I have an interesting relationship to Sacramento because I didn't grow up here, but I do have family history here. So my grandmother was born here. Um, my dad was born here. I actually live close to various places that he lived. Um, when he was a kid and lived near where he went to kindergarten. Um, so I have some fun stories. So Sacramento is such a great place to um, raise kids and and buy a home. And we've been very lucky to be near the grandparents. So gravitated is, back to
0: Sacramento. That is fantastic. I know what you mean about the uh, the grandparents uh, being close by. Hopefully that meant um, you had uh, some date nights or something like that every once yeah, in a while. we had all. some great help. That is fantastic. So how did you end up in your role today, Elizabeth?
1: So um, as I mentioned, my first job in healthcare was working at this uh, health rights hotline um, at Legal Services of Northern California at LISNIC. And in the 90s, when there was so much um, managed care, I think some of the big foundations realized how difficult it was for consumers to navigate, you know, how not everyone understands that they have to go to their primary care provider for referrals, how authorizations work, the billing works so they set up this program called the health rights hotline and and i got to work there for five years and i'm so glad i started my health career working directly with consumers so folks we we did have some uninsured folks and at the time before the affordable care act there were some uninsured people who there were no coverage options for them Um, but, but people with billing problems people who couldn't get the care they need people who couldn't find a specialist so We assisted them, and I took a, I was supervising the hotline counselors, but also took a phone shift every week, and um, definitely some of those health consumers stay with me. Um, After working directly with consumers for those five years, I had the opportunity to work at the Western Center on Law and Poverty, and they are a wonderful um, nonprofit uh, serving the needs of low-income Californians and advocating um, around healthcare, uh, public benefits, and housing. So I was a registered lobbyist um, representing uh-huh. the needs of low-income uh, poor Californians, so did a lot lot of work on Medi-Cal. I was there for a de- more than a decade, uh, was the director of, of uh, our advocacy program there, and um, got to work on the implementation of the Affordable Care Act in California and helped um, work on and write the Medi Cal expansion bills, which was just um, an amazing experience to get to do that. So I was worked in the legislature, but I also um, did a lot of administrative advocacy. So I did a lot of work with, uh, on, because of working with the Medi Cal program, with the Department of Healthcare Services. Um, with the Department of Managed Healthcare, with Covered California, I was at every Covered California board meeting as an advocate before, even before it was called Covered California. So uh, weighed in a lot with state agencies, um, and eventually thought, you know, I'm I'm kind of the out, the external um, advocate uh, urging state government what to do. I should try coming on the inside and doing it myself. So my first state job was with the Department of Managed Healthcare, which regulates health plans. And I oversaw their help center as a, as a deputy director. So consumers who get de- uh, care denied from their health plan can file a um, file for an appeal. Um, so we helped consumers with complaints as well as providers who might not have been getting paid timely. Um, so that was a great experience, did that for four plus years and then had this opportunity um, to be the director of what was when I was um, appointed uh, Three years ago, um, we were OSHPAD, the Office of Statewide Health Planning and Development. Um, and I came on and OSHPAD had um, a great portfolio of programs we were working on. Um, but there was this proposal to add this new Office of Healthcare Affordability um, because of the rising healthcare costs. And I know we'll talk more about that. So we went through this recast. Uh, we gradu- as, as our portfolio was growing, we, we got to graduate from an office to a department and come up with this um, great name of, of HCI Department of Healthcare Access and Information.
0: That is great. So great background. Um, so tell us, uh, and this is where I'm a little bit confused, so forgive me. So we have HCAI, <laughs> the Department of Healthcare Access and Information, but then we also have the Office of Healthcare Affordability. So is the office under HCAI?
1: Yes, yes. So HCAI <coughs> HKI is the department. So um, HKI is the Department of Healthcare Access and Information. We have five different program areas that we work on, and affordability um, is one key area. But I'd love to talk a little bit about HCI's other areas before we, we dive into the Office of Healthcare Affordability. Please do. Yeah. So HKI, again, has five main areas um, on the facility side. We are the building department for hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. So we set the building standards for hospitals, including the seismic safety standards. And we've been doing that for for 50 years. Um, On the financing side, we provide loan insurance. and and facilitate access to funding for nonprofit health facilities under our okay. Cal mortgage program. But most recently we actually our finance team stood up the distressed hospital loan program after Madera closed its doors almost uh, um, in at the end of December of 2022 and the legislature allocated funds for distressed hospitals, Our finance team stood that up. On the workforce side, we um, know that California doesn't have the workforce that it needs. We have a lot of workforce programs that we have for decades, helping train doctors, nurses, but now we're expanding to community health workers, um, a lot on the behavioral health care side, so working to diversify California's health workforce and also make sure we have primary care and behavioral health providers in rural areas in particular, so we focus on medically underserved areas. Um, our fourth area is data. So, we have again for, for decades um, managed and analyzed different data sets, including patient data sets, uh, hospital financial uh, data, skilled nursing facility, uh, the same. We um, recently launched California's all payer claims database, um, the HPD, the healthcare payments data program. Um, and so, we, we have a lot of great visualization. So, if you're a data if you're a health data geek like I am, we really hope you'll go to our website and, and check out our, our, our many uh, data sets. And, I, and then the, the healthcare for Office of Healthcare Affordability, or OCA, um, that affordability office got added um, in the uh, budget in July of, of 2022, so we'll, I know we'll be focusing on the Office of Healthcare Affordability this year. We think there are some really great synergies um, with the data sets um, and also with the workforce programs. Um, the other two things I'll just mention briefly under our, our, our affordability portfolio is that we, if you've heard the governor talk about the fact that the state of California is manufacturing um, biosimilar insulin products, and, uh, generic insulin, to try to disrupt the very... Um, broken insulin market um, and 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 offer insulin at a transparent, affordable price. HKi is actually overseeing that work. So the oh, CalRx wow. program is under us. And then last but not least, we're standing up a hospital fair billing program. So um, January of 2024, folks can now uh, file for a complaint um, if they feel they've been wrongly billed. By their hospital, so lots of work. So the Office of Healthcare Affordability is within our HCI department, and and all that other work that we are doing.
0: Wow, that is great. That is uh, quite a bit <laughs> that that your group does. So, quite a quick question on the um, the hospital um, complaint opportunity starting next year: is that for any type of hospital? Not is it not for profit hospitals? For pro- all the above.
1: Yeah, all hospitals. So, there in 2006, California passed a Hospital Fair Pricing Act that puts limits on what hospitals can charge uninsured and underinsured patients. So, back in the day, you know, mm-hmm. uninsured patients were the only people who were being charged the sticker price. Yeah. Um, you know, you you and I have insurance. Our insurance company negotiates what we're charged at a hospital. Uninsured folks were getting charged the sticker price. So this caps what underinsured or uninsured folks could be charged at the Medicare or Medi-Cal rate. Okay. Um, and then also put some limits on what kind, you know, when can you be sent to collections? Um, so every hospital has to have a charity care policy and a discount policy and has to abide by those policies. And we have a team that will be um, making sure that the hospitals do that.
0: That is fantastic. I, uh, I have a personal experience with uh, some interesting building. Um, so it's nice, nice to see that there's movement um, there. Um, so that'll be so January 1st. Fir-
1: too many people have had that experience. So we, we um, you know need to, uh, and, and it's overwhelming for, for a consumer who gets a high bill and just thinks that, that, you know, that that's okay and that they should start paying it. And we're certainly hearing a lot about that at the Office of Healthcare Affordability.
0: That's great. So, folks, we're recording this right before the the flip from 2023 to 2024. So, Elizabeth, do you happen to know? Um, I know it's going. Is it is it ready to go live? Like, is there a website when folks hear this episode or see yeah. this episode and can you share what that website would be? How folks can uh, get there?
1: Absolutely. Our website is hcai.ca.gov. So hcai.ca.gov, and we are highlighting both our Office of Healthcare Affordability and our and our hospital fair billing program. So listeners, please go to our website if you think you got a hospital bill that was higher than you should have um, and file a complaint online with us or um, by mail if you need to. We're here to help. That's great.
0: Yeah, so one of my questions that I I was thinking of asking you today was the reception to your uh, newer office of healthcare affordability. And before answering, I do want to acknowledge there's there's kind of two groups I, I would think. There's the public who receives the services, but then there's also the hospital leadership who need to be reimbursed fairly. So I'm guessing re- receptivity since the majority of the population are folks like me, we're probably excited about it, but maybe there's folks who aren't so excited. I'm curious, like in general, what's the receptivity to the Office of Healthcare Affordability?
1: So the Office of Healthcare Affordability deals with healthcare costs and affordability very broadly, right? So it's beyond hospital okay. costs, but also gotcha. pharmaceutical costs and all and all costs. So um you know, I think it's really interesting to look at the at the history of OCA and how it came to be. So it actually is the product of a little bit of a strange bedfellows um, uh, coalition. So, you know, their previous, I think first and foremost is why do we need to address affordability? We, we rarely need to convince people about that because most folks um, have seen their premiums go up year after year, their deductibles and their co-pays go up so extensively. Um, so we um, overall healthcare spend overall healthcare spending in California has just been increasing at um, such a rapid clip. Um, it was up nearly thirty percent between twenty fifteen and twenty twenty, reaching more than ten thousand dollars per person um, and four hundred billion dollars in the state. So we've we've really seen. So, so I graduated from college in nineteen ninety one. At that time. Per capita healthcare spending in California was twenty seven hundred dollars a person, Um, and then uh, thirty years later in twenty twenty, it was more than ten thousand dollars ten thousand three hundred in twenty twenty. So we've seen healthcare costs go up um, almost five percent a year um, as a you know on average, whereas and it's really doubled inflation and family wages. So anyway, just, just to give a little bit of background why healthcare affordability is a huge problem. It's been eating up um, people's wage increases. We have a lot of labor unions that are supportive of the office because when they go to the negotiating table, when premiums are, are skyrocketing, uh, are increasing at such a, a high rate, it's very difficult to, to negotiate higher wages for folks. Um, so we, we have really broad consensus that, that affordability is a problem. Um, there was a bill, uh, to, that would have, um, allowed for, uh, uh, for the government to actually set healthcare rates. Uh, people didn't like that, didn't want to have caps on rates. So then a coalition came together and said, well, we have to do something about affordability. If we're yeah. not going to set healthcare rates, what are we, what can we do?
0: So- the Office of Healthcare Affordability doesn't make the laws, but you collect data and then what you is it like is it, are the lawmakers coming to you to hear what's happening and then creating the laws or how does how does what your group does influence what happens i guess?
1: So um, there's three uh, main components of the Office of Healthcare Affordability. So one of them absolutely is around data and transparency. Um, so I'll just I'll just go through each, each of those. So um, we don't we we have some data. So the data that I just cited is kind of our best guesses. It's there is some data about healthcare costs, but it's not as comprehensive as it needs to be. So okay. one thing, the one key component of the Office of Healthcare Affordability is going to um, be to uh, collect what we're calling total healthcare expenditure data and have mm-hmm. comprehensive total healthcare expenditure data for the first time. And so, yes, we do think that'll be an important um, data point for policymakers. Related to that, to that data transparency and collecting that data will be that we have a new healthcare affordability board. And they will be setting a spending growth target in California for the first time. So that spending growth target is um, a rate of growth uh, beyond which the, uh, healthcare costs shouldn't uh, increase. So for and and um, we have a preliminary staff proposal of a three percent spending growth target. It's up to the board to adopt that. Most okay. states who have adopted spending growth targets. Have set them somewhere you know, in the in the low in the 3% to low threes. Uh, Oregon, I think it's 3.4 going down to 3%. So transparency data and a spending growth target is one piece, a uh, key piece. The second key um, component to the office is that we know that healthcare consolidations are a major. Uh, cause of cost increases right. um, and the data that always sticks with me. So Gavin, we we have healthcare affordability board meetings monthly. They're public meetings. Anyone who's listening can go on our website um, and participate in those meetings, either virtually or in person. This summer, we had a presentation from some economists about consolidation and its impacts. And this is the data point that stuck with me is that when two hospitals merge the research shows that prices go up 20 to 44%, so a big increase in prices, quality stays the same or goes down. So, um, you know, often with mergers and acquisitions, there's claims that we're gonna, you know, improve quality, we're gonna bring costs down, and that just hasn't been the experience. It increases those entities' bargaining power. Um, and it hasn't led to, to increased costs. So, all of that to say that as this um, is airing in January of 2024, we have new authority uh, that any uh, merger acquisition of healthcare entities in California, um, there are lots of different thresholds, but it's a, a 25 million or more. Um, uh, they have to file a notice with our office, so we'll have okay. new transparency. Um, If there's a a proposed transaction that we have a concern will impact negatively on affordability or patient access, we can do a full cost and market impact review, and we can refer um, cases of concern to the attorney general. So so new authority over consolidation. So we have the data and the cost targets. We have the consolidation um, oversight And then the third important uh, main prong of the Office of Healthcare Affordability is around performance improvement. This is not about, uh, we we don't want to race to the bottom um, to just bring healthcare costs down. We think and and research shows that there are ways to actually improve care and bring costs down. So on the performance measurement side, we are going to um, set, the board will be setting benchmarks for spending on primary care and behavioral health. We, the research is very clear that when um, in healthcare systems that invest more in preventive care and primary care, you do get that magic combination of lower costs and improved health outcomes for consumers, and that's what we want to see. Um, we also want to change the way healthcare is paid for. Um, when anytime you have a fee for service system, where Uh, a provider gets paid for every service that they do instead of for the outcome. There's an incentive to do more services. So we're working on alternative payment models to have more of a value-based approach to payment. Um, We'll also be measuring um, some equity and quality measures alongside costs. So this is really about trying to improve um, healthcare at the same time we control costs.
0: That is, uh, you guys have a lot going on. So... The, op- the office, uh, my recollection, and folks, um, I had the opportunity to hear Elizabeth speak at the uh, California Association of Health Plans Annual Conference. And uh, that's where I met. Uh, we met briefly afterwards. Um, this was back in October of 2023. So my understanding is the office officially opened in January of 2022. Do I have that right? July, July of 2022. Yeah. Sorry about that. July of 2022. So it's been almost a year and a half are there, you've talked about kind of what you all are working on. Have there been any, have there been any additional um, like changes or wins or challenges that you haven't mentioned in the last year and a half?
1: Yeah. So again, we were created in the budget. So we um, officially went live July of 2022, but of course it takes time to bring on the, the staff. So um, we've been hiring staff and have made significant progress um, in each of the three main strategies I described. Um so we've been working toward data decisions on measuring that total healthcare expenditures, um, and gathering information to guide the board's work um, to set the targets on healthcare spending um, growth. So uh, again, that spending growth target establishes a maximum limit on acceptable rate of spending growth uh-huh. um, for healthcare entities. That that first step is data and transparency. So over the last you know year plus, we've been um, uh, figuring out how to do that data collection on total healthcare expenditures, um, and we uh, have put out proposed regulations about how to collect that data. And again, we have proposed the first spending growth target, so that's a very important milestone that we've just reached. the uh, The Healthcare Affordability Board just started a meeting in March of 2023, so okay. we had to hire our staff. Um, the board um, is appointed by the governor, the Senate pro tem and the assembly speaker. So we have a wonderful, engaged, uh, very, very knowledgeable uh, healthcare affordability board that will be setting those spending growth targets. So uh, the board started meeting um, in March of 2023. We meet mostly monthly. Um, People who are regulated entities under the office can't serve on the board. So, you know, hospital executive, um, a health plan, someone who works for a health plan can't be on the board. So in order to make sure we're hearing all of those voices, we also have an advisory committee. So the board appointed an Uh advisory committee and that advisory committee started meeting in the summer of 2023. So we have a 27 member advisory committee that includes um, uh, consumer advocates Members of unions, um, purchasers um, who are who are buying the health coverage, health plans, hospitals, doctors, um, and and frontline healthcare workers. So we've hired our staff, we've set up our board, we've set up our advisory committee, and and we really have made significant progress toward all of our streams. Um, our cost of market impact review regulations um, and process ha- are going live in January of twenty twenty four. Okay. And then on the performance measure side, we have um, started to define primary care uh, so that we can set those primary care benchmarks in the summer of 2024. And also, we have started to work on those alternative payment models to move more toward value-based purchasing. So really, um, I'm very proud of the the team's work in all all of our work streams. Um, just wanna make a note that, that our health, both our healthcare affordability board and our advisory committee meetings are public meetings. So people can, again, come in person or watch. Um, we post our minutes. Stakeholder engagement is very important in this process. And I think, you know, there's, a, there's some uncertainty. It's, uh, change is hard. And um, we, we know that something has to change with our healthcare system to make it more affordable and accessible for consumers. And we need to really um, work alongside our stakeholders every step of the way.
0: Awesome. Well, we appreciate that. And um, can you say your website one more time for us?
1: Yeah, our website is hcai.ca.gov. So that's hcai.ca.gov. Um, and again, there's a, a affordability link. You can go to the affordability link. There's information about our our board, our regulations, um, our advisory committee. Um, We also have some technical work groups weighing in. So we're we're having a lot of engagement um, with consumer advocates, with industry representatives, a lot of uh, coordination with our sibling departments also.
0: That's great. So you've talked a lot about what you've done so far, what's happening. I usually like to end each episode with the things that the guests are looking forward to in 2024. You kind of touched on a lot of things that will be happening next year. Is there anything else that you're looking forward to uh, here in the new year?
1: Yeah, I mean, i'm I really am excited about each of the three main work streams that we're working on because I think um, it's important to have all three to work in concert to to drive toward the high value system um, that Californians um, need and deserve. Um, so a key step is is the greater transparency. So the office will be publishing. Um, an annual report on the spending growth targets and, and on health spending trends will also be including kind of some best practices and some models for how um, so some recommendations to slow cost growth and improve the quality and equity. So excited for that first um, annual report. Um, the it, in 2024, the Healthcare Affordability Board is going to set that first cost growth target. So by June at the latest, but they may do it as early as as um, as March or, or April, we're proposing a five-year target. We think um, mm-hmm. it's important to have for, for the market to, to know what's coming um, in subsequent uh, years. So that first target is a statewide target. And okay. in subsequent years, the board has the authority to set um, different targets for different sectors. So they could decide this geographic area spending's gotten particularly out of whack. We're gonna have a more aggressive a target, for example, or it could be by sectors of the market, you know, hospitals or health plans or medical groups. So that that's really foundational work. Um, I'm also really excited about our efforts to improve our healthcare system with the APMs and the primary care spend. Um, again, I think it makes intuitive sense to people if if you if you invest in primary care and preventive care, we're going to increase outcomes. Um, but, you know, what what I really most hope for um, and what animates uh, my work is making a difference for consumers, yep. um, for families struggling to make ends meet. Um for seniors who go without needed medications because of the cost. So that's why we're here doing this work um, is because we've heard so many of those stories. And because our healthcare board, um, our our affordability board is a public meeting. We've had at every meeting we've had consumers come tell their stories. Um, We've had, you know, folks who, who work in hotels, uh, cleaning hotels who, um, who have thousands of dollars in, in hospital bills um, even though they had insurance um, at our latest meeting we heard from a from a mother in her 40s who was diagnosed with MS so she went from a healthy person to one needing needing a wheelchair, a power wheelchair. and you know she spoke she was crying as she spoke to us about the about the costs and the impact it was having on her and her family, and so you know those are the stories of um, that that really motivate our work. And so we, uh, the spending growth targets, are not a perfect solution. None of this is. It took us decades to get. To the healthcare system, where we are, we're not going to be able to turn this around um, overnight. But we do know that something has to change, and we do believe that the strategies that the office has um, are are the right place to start. So those are we're, we're here because of those consumers um, and their challenges. Um, so what most excites me is trying to make a difference for them.
0: That's great. I have a I have a mom who's a senior and retired, and uh, she'll love to hear a lot. Lot of what you just said, because uh, care is definitely expensive for her. Well, Elizabeth, yeah. you've been a wealth of information. Um, um, so again, folks, check out the website HCAI. I learned that's the correct pronunciation: HCAI Elizabeth also shared about a ton of data and visualizations um, at the conference back in October. There were a lot of great graphs. So uh, keep an eye on the website uh, for different reports in the future that she mentioned. Um, Elizabeth, really appreciate you taking the time today.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.